Hi, and welcome to Grazia Life Advice, Grazia Magazine's podcast. I'm Hattie Crisell, and each week I speak to women worth listening to, asking them to share six pieces of advice they really value and the worst piece of advice they've ever received. My guest this week is Elizabeth Day, the woman behind the fantastic podcast How to Fail and a new memoir of the same name. Elizabeth is a very high achiever herself. She graduated with a double first from Cambridge. She's won various journalism awards and she's published four novels. But don't hate her for that because she's very modest and wouldn't have mentioned any of it herself. What she's really interested in is failure and how it shapes us and how it's shaped her. And fittingly enough, she went to the wrong part of London for our interview, so we got off to the perfect start. She shared excellent advice and wisdom to help us all cope better with our own mistakes. So let us know what you think of this episode on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag Grazia Life Advice. But for now, over to Liz. You've written four novels before, but this is your first book about your personal life. It's first kind of memoir for you. What have been the differences in the experience between writing those different kinds of books? Yeah, that's such a good question. So it's really interesting because I think that they're both versions of truth. (laughs) I think the deal I made with myself was to be really, really honest about the things I chose to write about. When I'm writing a novel, a lot of what I've experienced will find its way into characters and characters' experiences. And it's never a direct link, but it's interesting reading back to the first novel I wrote when I was 29, 30. And I can see the stage of life I was at through the prism of the characters I've created. Whereas obviously with How to Fail, it was much more straightforward. I didn't have to think about a plot because the plot was my own life. Right, yeah. (laughs) And um, I mean, I did do a, a bit of research, but also all I needed was in my own memory vault, which is actually a super liberating thing to do. Yeah. And it meant that I could do it more quickly than I've ever written a novel partly because I know it's such a cliche but it really did pour out of me because mm. I suddenly realised that actually I'd been really yearning for this opportunity because whilst I've written pieces of personal journalism it's always been to a, quite a tight word count and to an editor's behest and this was the first time that I felt I was really able to express exactly what I wanted to say in the way that I wanted to say it with no word limit. Was that quite cathartic? It was so cathartic. It really Mm. was. I didn't do it as an exercise in catharsis, but it just happened that that was one of the happy byproducts of it. So to backtrack a little bit, um, for anyone who's not familiar, you have the podcast How to Fail, which came first. Yes. um, And was really very quickly very successful. That's that's right, isn't it? (laughs) I'm smiling because it's it's such an irony. But yeah, it was completely, again, unexpectedly successful quite early on. Because I sort of did it just for myself. It was was a real passion project that I put my own money into. And the I mean, I highly recommend anybody listening to go and subscribe to it. But the format of your podcast is that you have interesting guests, successful people who come on and talk about times when they failed. And, you know, often the failures that have nagged away at them over the years and the things that they regret so it's it makes for a fantastic listen because obviously we've all been there um and it's nice to hear that even the people who you respect and admire have have been through you know bad decision making and done stupid things and (laughs) and all of that so no wonder it's done well you know has it been wonderful for you to hear all of those stories it's been so wonderful and thank you for saying such lovely things it's been so wonderful in so many ways and When I say unexpected, 
I'm not being twee. That is genuinely the case in that I did it because I felt that it was an important conversation to have more widely. And I got eight guests together, mainly from friends and contacts. And I didn't care if only two people listened to it and those two people were my parents. So to find it connecting on such a wide level was really heartening for me and made me feel so much better about the episodes of failure in my life. And it wasn't just hearing my amazing guests talk about what they'd been through, but it was also the listener response that I got. So I've learned a lot and I've been um, very, very lucky that I've had that kind of response that has made me so much happier about my own failings. Yeah, (laughs) that's a nice side effect. Um, And so the the book is it's not a collection of those people's stories. It's about you and it's about, it's called How to Fail as well, but it's really about what you've learned from your own personal failures. I, mean, I was wondering, is there a sort of, not to make you relive difficult times or anything, but is there a sort of key failure in your own life that you think was a real game changer for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I don't mind reliving that at all because because it's a marker of how much happier I now feel. So the real game changer for me, it was two failures really, and they're connected. In uh, my early 30s, I got married and then I had always wanted to have children and I conspicuously failed to be able to have babies. I went through unsuccessful IVF and then I ended up getting pregnant naturally after two cycles and had a miscarriage at three months. And that was when my life really imploded. And um, it partly led to the breakdown of my marriage. So that all happened. The IVF the miscarriage happened in 2014 and February 2015, my marriage ended. So that was a very intense period of time. I was 36 and my life suddenly looked nothing like I thought it was going to when I was younger and when I had lots of aspirations and ambitions. I always thought I was going to be a mother and I always thought I was going to be married. And so to be pitched into that level of uncertainty in your mid to late 30s is a particularly tricky time for a woman. It's awful. Yeah. So I think that was a real game changer and it was really tough. And when I got through it, because my life was so different from how I'd imagined it, I had no plan. And therefore, in a way, whilst that's scary, it's also liberating because it was like wiping clean the blackboard Mm. and just then being able to start again. And and I was forced into that, but I'm now very, very grateful for that because I became more myself than ever before. Yeah. I think I'd outsourced a sense of myself to a series of not very good relationships throughout my 20s and 30s. And then suddenly I was on my own and I really had to look at myself and um, and understand who I was and what would make me content long term. Yeah. So, so through that, very very difficult time you sort of found yourself without wanting to use terrible American god it's so true I did that's what basically (laughs) what I was saying yeah yeah (laughs) that's fantastic okay well let's start with your um advice actually the first piece of advice is fairly relevant to what we've just been talking about tell me what it is yes the first piece of advice is the universe is unfolding exactly as is intended and you're right that that time in my life really taught me that. I'd always been someone as a child at school, I sort of did well at school and then I got praised for that. And then I became a bit of a people pleaser and a bit of a perfectionist and someone who had very distinct goals and ambitions and would have a five-year plan. And um, if anything, 
the latter half of my 30s taught me that it sometimes is really great not to have a plan and just to be able to respond when things happen in the way that feels most instinctive to you. And this piece of advice is not my own. I read it in something called a prose poem. Um, and it's by um, someone called Max Ehrman, who wrote a prose poem called Desiderata. Oh, yes. I've yes. heard of that. Yeah. And I read it on the back of a toilet door. <laughs> <laughs> Where all the best, all the best reading right. happens. Yeah, exactly. All the best life advice comes from graffiti on the back of a toilet door. It was actually printed out on the back of a toilet door. And I was at a particularly jittery phase in my life. And reading that particular line gave me such a sense of calm. And I think it's good sometimes just to remind yourself that you're ultimately quite powerless in this giant universe where things can be chaotic and random and they can also be serendipitous and wonderful. But sometimes it's good to just surrender and be and allow yourself to be and to respond to the present moment and to realise that there's lots of stuff going on that you will be able to tackle when it comes to it but not to worry about the fact that you're not tackling it right now because it hasn't happened yet yeah I do think that's one of the big shocks of grown-up life that things you sort of grow up thinking that well if I do x and y then z will just automatically follow and then you find that actually things are completely unfair things don't work out when they're supposed to people fall out of love with you when you thought that you were all set up and it's actually quite a sort of um, traumatic yeah. discovery, I think, as as an, an adult. Definitely. First of all, I can't believe anyone would ever fall out of love with you. Well, obviously, it's never happened to me. <laughs> You've heard that it's happened to other people several times. But carry on. <laughs> um, but I think you're so right, and I also think because we live in such a kind of examined culture in two ways. One is that at school there are shitloads of exams, and therefore you get used to having delineated goals and something to work towards. And suddenly you're in your 20s and there's none of that anymore. And you're like, well, how do I know whether I'm doing right or not? And then it's examined in another way in that there's a constant culture of recording everything we're doing on social media. I love social media and think it's a great good in many respects. But I do think that if you're feeling vulnerable, other people seeming to have a fabulous time is really difficult to deal with. And we live in an age of curated perfection. And that can be extremely overwhelming. And that's why I think it's really important to talk honestly about the times when things don't go right, because you feel less alone, you make other people feel less alone. Absolutely. Do you have a five year plan now? Like secretly? No, you know, I actually <laughs> don't, Hattie. And I'm actually surprised that I don't myself. I'm not even secretly. And I got asked this the other day. And it was the first time I've been asked it for ages. And I was like, no, I actually, I genuinely don't. And I feel so happy that I don't. Because I think what that does to me is make me feel much more grateful for what's happening right now. And trying as ever to be in the present which yeah. is a difficult thing to do and it also means that I'm more flexible when some when an opportunity presents itself hopefully I'll have the capacity to pursue it rather than rigidly sticking to this yeah diarized itemization I have in my head yeah um your second piece of advice really ties in with quite a lot of what we've just been saying but it's worry less yeah this is the thing that if I could tell my younger self this is the one piece of advice I would give her because I worried so much as a child and I'm still a real worrier but I don't think I 
it's anywhere near as bad. And I also don't think I appear to be someone who worries, which is good. No, you seem very chilled out. Actually. Okay, good. <laughs> it's, it's working. <laughs> uh, pulling the wool over your eyes. No, I, I mean, I do, I do worry a lot less. But I was an incredibly anxious child and teenager. And it was because I never felt good enough. And I was the one with that internal narrative. I don't feel that that was being pressed on me by outside forces. There was something within me that made me feel like I needed to keep on trying really hard and doing everything I could to ensure that I was erecting defences against things going wrong all of the time. And actually, I suppose divorce and IVF and all that made me realise that there were no defences I could erect against that. I heard Sarah Knight on this uh, this podcast and um, she has that great saying, which is like, what are you worrying over? Can you control it? If you can't control it, you might as well just not give a fuck about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no point. There's no point. So, uh, yes, I would tell my younger self to worry less, although she would worry then that she was worrying She's too worrying much. She's worrying too much, of yeah. course, yeah. <laughs> so your third piece of advice, tell me about this. You exist separately from your thoughts is my third piece of advice. This is something that has really come home to me doing the podcast, actually. And also because the podcast came out at the end of another relationship post-divorce. And um, at the time that that relationship ended, I was really sad. And I was listening to a lot of self-help podcasts, cliche that I am. Well, here we are on essentially a self-help <laughs> podcast, so this no judgment perfect. here. Exactly. <laughs> if you're going through a breakup, one of the things that I listened to was Eckhart Tolle being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey on her Super Soul Sunday podcast. And I'd never listened to him speak before and I'd never read his book, The Power of Now. But he talks about that notion that we exist separately from our thoughts. And it blew my mind. He was like, if you could switch off your thoughts right now, you would still exist. There's still a you-ness. And your thoughts are actually a product of your brain in the same way that blood is a product of your heart. This was something talked to me by someone I interviewed on the podcast for the forthcoming season. And he said, you know, you wouldn't think you were defined by your blood. Mm. Why do you think you're defined by your thoughts? You can actually train your brain to start thinking more positively. And I found that very helpful and very calming. Just that idea that even if I didn't do anything or have any more thoughts, I would still be me. Um, it, it's, I think it comes from Buddhist philosophy originally. Why is it good to exist separately from your thoughts? I think it's good to have thoughts, don't get me wrong. Like, <laughs> like, I think it's good to think and be thoughtful in all senses of the word. But I think there are sometimes, it, it ties into what we were talking about earlier, where your thoughts can run away with you and start making you believe that what your brain is thinking is real. Right. And in moments of panic and vulnerability... True that you're all- a loser or whatever it is your your internal your shrill internal critic is not actually telling you the truth therefore it's very helpful to think oh I can dial down the volume on that and I'm still me yeah so I think that's when it's it really comes into play yeah that is that is very nice I think um your fourth piece of advice great art provokes strong opinions yes uh so this was something that was said to me I published my first novel when I was 32 and um it's really terrifying publishing a novel <laughs> god yeah i can imagine and uh i had obviously because it's my first novel i'd poured a lot of myself into it 
And it was something that I had dreamt of doing from the age of four. I always wanted to write books. So it's the fulfillment of a lifelong ambition. So there was a lot riding on it on an, in an emotional capacity. And it came out and the first two reviews I had were absolute stinkers. Oh, no. They were hideous. Oh, poor you. The first one was in the Evening Standard and I've never forgotten the name of the person who wrote it. <laughs> And it's terrible. I'm a Scorpio and I always bear a grudge. I'll like, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. Right. You'll um, hate that person until yes, you're deathbed. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't hate this person, but I just will never forget. And then the second one was an Irish cultural discussion program. So I grew up in Ireland. So they're always really, generally they're really supportive when I have a book out. And um, they, it was a panel. It was like a news night, late review type thing. And every single member of that panel completely eviscerated it. Oh, and accused me of making every single mistake a first-time novelist could make and why didn't she have a better editor and actually it's embarrassing. It was awful. Oh, God, you poor thing. It was awful. And I remember being really upset and crying and my friend Simon called me and he at the time was running an art gallery and he said to me, great art provokes strong opinions. He's like, it's actually so much better to have elicited a very strong negative opinion because that means there'll also be very strong positive opinions. But so much better that than doing something completely mediocre that no one really has a thought about because they don't really care yeah, enough. Like they can't even be bothered to have the conversation about it. Yes. Yeah. And whether he was right or not to categorise my novel in that way, he was like, you have a very specific style and you're doing something new and some people will get it and some people won't. And it, God, it was helpful. It was yeah. so, so helpful. And I always, always think of that now. Yeah. That, um, yeah, opinions are easily generated, easily shared. It's much harder to do the thing. And you have to be clear about what you're doing and have belief in it. And then everyone else's opinion is just noise and that goes for good and for bad. But the chances are that if someone is so annoyed by something, it means that you've moved them in some capacity. And it also means the chances are that someone will be moved in an equally positive way. Yeah. Is that something that people talk about much on your podcast, you know, their experiences of bad reviews or um, bad feedback? Uh, yes. I, the one that I'm thinking of, which is hilarious because it's not at all representative, but <laughs> it was my uh, interview for the podcast with Sebastian Folks. Yeah. Because <laughs> I asked him how, whether he's ever had a bad review and he was like, oh, I've had plenty, but I actually really like it. I, oh. like, <laughs> I like engaging with someone who thinks negatively if they've actually put thought into it because it's like having a good old debate type thing. And oh, If only we could all have a bit of what Sebastian's got. <laughs> in so many ways, Hattie, in so many ways. Um Lovely fifth piece of advice. Tell me what this one is. The fifth piece of advice is smile. God, this makes me sound so Pollyanna-ish. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Who am I? Good old-fashioned positivity. Why, um, is, why did you put this on your list? Well, this was actually a specific piece of advice that was given to me because I am someone who has a resting bitch face. <laughs> and um, because I'm quite tall... And I had a growth spurt when I was a teenager. So as a 17 year old, I was pretty tall. And I think I seemed to be someone who had their shit together, but I didn't feel like that at all. I felt incredibly insecure and anxious and nervous most of the time. And because I was feeling anxious and shy and nervous and introverted and all of those things, I wasn't just going around smiling at people. I was, yeah. I was like, 
And I always, that really annoys me when I get, and I have, I am one of those people who has been told in the street, cheer up, love. I'm like, well, cheer up, love, it might never happen. And I, I think, first of all, it might just have happened and you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and secondly, I don't see why I should have to go around smiling inanely. That looks weird. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, when I was 17, I started doing debates, debating and public speaking. And my English teacher, who was also the debating teacher, was called Mrs. Mel Hewish. And she said to me, before you even start speaking, when you stand up to give a speech, before you even start, look around the room and smile. She's like, not only will that relax your facial muscles and make you feel more relaxed, but it makes the audience feel more relaxed too. And it immediately wins them over. That's great advice. Yeah. And it was a really simple thing and it massively worked. And from that day on, I started to smile more to make more of an effort not when I was walking down the street but when I was doing something professional where I was feeling nervous and it required winning people over I remembered to smile and it was really helpful Mm. I've used it in tv appearances and things like that as well and yeah I think that's a very very helpful especially if you're worried about public speaking I think it's a really good thing to remember it sets everyone at ease yeah I hate public speaking so I'm going to keep hold of that one it is very disarming isn't it if somebody's smart and also it's very difficult to dislike somebody who's I always think it's a little bit like um kill people with kindness I always think is a good piece of advice that you know if you're if you're lovely to people and you smile at them it's quite difficult for them to then really you know not like you or not support you definitely definitely and also there's a lot to be said for being honest about being scared about stuff so just saying oh I'm giving a speech here today I'm actually terrified of public speaking but here I am because again there's an immediate sense of connection an immediate sense of um, shared humanity and as you say it's very disarming and disarming in all ways so yeah smile that's my profound advice (laughs) (laughs) and then your last one is a practical piece of advice Oh, I'm really glad. I totally forgotten that I'd written this one. I'm really glad I put it in. The last piece of advice is wear colour. Yeah. So for years, and it all ties into this, actually, I was trying to appear more grown up than I was and appear more confident than I was. So when I went into the workplace the first time in my 20s, I remember always aspiring to be one of those mythical French women who has a capsule wardrobe. (laughs) Don't we all, yeah. (laughs) And who has like elegant things that just go together but are very well cut. Yeah, and And, barely gives it a second thought. It just comes together so easily. Just a slash of red lipstick, (laughs) a baguette, and she's off. (laughs) Um, So I bought what I thought that mythical French woman would be buying, which is lots of blacks and greys and neutrals that all went together, but was super depressing. And actually... I don't think black really suits me that much. (laughs) And um, I got through my 20s and sort of 30s like that. And then something happened. So, you know, I went through the divorce and everything I've already spoken about. I went through another relationship breakup and I found myself in the position of going to consult a psychic life coach. (laughs) Wow. Because I'm actually really interested in stuff like that. And and, And I go with a sense of irony like when I go. But... It was really interesting. And this woman was called Linda, even though you expect a psychic life coach to be called Meg the Magnificent or something. But she was called (laughs) Linda and I met her in a hotel uh, by Tower Bridge and she was lovely. And one of the things that she said to me, and I was actually wearing, unlike me, I was wearing like a white top that day. So I didn't look like someone who was dressed as a mime artist. But she said, I get the impression that you're someone who wears a lot of dark colours, a lot of black and a lot of grey. And that's been representative of the phase of life you've been going through. You've had a very dark time, but you're emerging from that now. And I really think you should wear more colour. Wow. And that night I went back home 
And I fished out this like red sweatshirt from the back of my wardrobe and I wore it for dinner that night. I got so many comments on it. And from that moment on, I made a deal with myself that I wasn't allowed to buy. And if I bought anything new, it wasn't allowed to be black. And I discovered colour and that I loved it and that people responded to me much better when I was wearing colour and that I felt better in myself and that it actually suited me. And I realised that I'd been trying to disappear literally by Mm. wearing blacks and greys. And wearing colour, you announce yourself and you have to claim the space that you occupy. So it's been a really great thing for me and I've absolutely loved it. And there are so many amazing colours out there. Yeah. And not only has it been a pleasure aesthetically for me to like buy all these lovely clothes, but it's also been really great emotionally. Yeah, that's lovely. Do you think you're somebody who is affected a lot by your surroundings and, you know, what you can see? Yes. Mood wise. Such a good question. (laughs) And that is absolutely true. I'm a very visual person in that my thoughts are visual. If I think of my thoughts, because I am separate from my thoughts, they are. (laughs) Yeah. um, So I will always remember visually as well. And, And when I write a novel, I think quite filmically. So. I'm very inspired by films and I will describe a scene because I see it in my head. Um, So I am extremely visual. Home is very important to me to live somewhere that I feel kind of comfortable and safe that I have nice, you know, nice things in like photos and books. That's very important to me. And um, yeah, so I am. And I'm I'm quite I'm pretty affected by weather as well, actually. Just today is such a beautiful sunny day and I feel very happy because of that. I know it is lovely. Well, that was all fantastic advice. That brings us on to your uh, worst piece of advice you've ever received, um, which is just mind-blowing. Tell me what this is. Uh, It is genuinely the worst piece of advice. The worst piece was stay with him to get pregnant first and then leave. (laughs) Did somebody actually suggest that to you? Word for word. Really? Yes. And it was... It was at the end of a very long-term relationship... And I almost, it's only in retrospect that I realise how shocking that piece of advice was. Mm. And it's also, it, it tells me lots. It was a woman who gave that advice to me. And I think so many people feel that they have the right to proclaim on a woman's fertility or baby making ability. Like That is something that I've had so many people say to me who I've, barely met and barely know and this particular woman I didn't know very well uh, say to me you know well are you on birth control you know what do you like oh lit- I, so you know do you want babies with this person you've only just met and you know it's it's so because I have been open about fertility and not having children I guess people maybe feel specifically with me that they can but I I always find it incredibly uh, intrusive intrusive and quite per- and very very personal yeah and um yeah so this particular woman her advice was well you know you're running out of time so if you want a child and i could see it came from a good place because she was saying if you desperately want a child then that has to be your focus and that's what you should do and once you've got your child you've only got a finite window of time in which to have a child and you're getting on a bit have it now and then deal with the other stuff later but then that's terrible advice because you end up trapped in a relationship that is dysfunctional and you don't want to be in 
And not only that, but were you ever to break up with that person, and I would find it much harder to break up with someone, I imagine, if I had a child with that person, you're then connected with them forever. Yeah, for the rest of your yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And you have to do lots of mature grown-up things, like not bitch about your ex to your to your child. Yeah, and, it's and really try difficult. and agree with each other about, you know, financial things. Yes. Or, you know, you have basically a sort of working relationship with that person. Let alone thinking of the child in that situation, like how unhappy it would be for them. So it was terrible advice. And terrible advice, I think, for anyone, but also particularly for me, because one of the things that I came to realise about myself when I was single in my late 30s was that I wasn't desperate to have a baby. I really wanted to have children, but I wasn't viscerally obsessed with it because I knew that I could go and do it on my own if I really, really wanted to. And there are brave and brilliant women, some of whom I know, who have gone and done that and I admire them so much. I knew that that was never for me and that for me, what has always been more important is having a functioning and happy romantic relationship and maybe within that having children but it was always that way around yeah just for me and that's that's what worked for me so so again that piece of advice in that specific context for me as a specific person would have been terrible and I'm so glad I ignored it yeah but I think it's really difficult because when you're feeling very vulnerable at the end of a relationship and you're going through a breakup I don't know about you but I I constantly seek out other people's opinions because I'm not sure what I think myself because it's such Mm. a confusing time you're scared of making the wrong decision yourself yeah yeah and you've lost faith in your judgment because the relationship hasn't worked out so it's a very very vulnerable time but there was something about this piece of advice that even I knew instinctively that is not great yeah and I'm going to ignore it until I have to talk about it for a podcast years later (laughs) we'll dredge it up and go through it again um well you've been a fantastic guest Liz and it's a wonderful book so thank you so much for coming in oh thank you so much for having me Hattie it's been a pleasure Thanks so much to Liz. Her book, How to Fail, is out now and I definitely recommend subscribing to the podcast of the same name. If you like our podcast, please help us out by subscribing, rating it, reviewing it or sharing it. See you next week for more advice from Women Worth Listening To.